Hey, hi, I am Richard Donner, but you can call me Dick, and you're listening to Superman Movie Minute? Is that right? Did I do it right? Welcome to another exciting episode of Superman 3 Movie Minute, the show that scrutinizes, analyzes, and you'll believe a man can flies this. 1983 Superman 3, five minutes at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, Rob Kelly. And joining me on this journey through time and space is... Chris Franklin. Howdy, Chris. Hey, Rob. How's it going? It's going well. We're back. We're here to talk about minutes 30 through 35 of Superman 3. We're going to start off with Ross Webster admonishing Lorelai and Vera, and we're going to end with another scene uh, with uh, Ross Webster, but this is time between him and Gus talking. In between, uh, there is a particular stunt that, depending on your point of view, is everything great about Superman 3 or everything wrong about Superman 3. We'll talk about that one when we... When we get there. So, again, I said, the, the scenes open up. Uh, basically, it, it continues on with the uh, scene where it lo- left off last time, where Ross is talking to his butler, or sure, not his butler, but like his business manager, I guess. Right. And Lorelai there and, uh, and Vera. I like there's a some little gratuitous skin there where Lorelai sits in the chair and twirls her legs around, which is, you know, appreciated. I'm sure at, at age 12, I, I enjoyed that. I don't remember. But I must have liked it at age 12. Uh, and again, we just see more and more about Ross's uh, as he's figuring out uh, you know, what's going on. But they realize that there's something mysterious going on with the money disappearing. And Ross has a line about where he says, obviously, whoever is stealing from us uh, is going to hide it very well. Because otherwise, he'd be an utter moron. <laughs> Cue up a scene of Ross looking out of his penthouse. And we see Gus Gorman driving... I don't know what kind of car that is. It's you a know Ferrari. Oh, it's a Ferrari. It's a, okay. Yeah. I knew what a Ferrari uh, was because of Magnum P.I. Uh, because uh, my mom was a huge Tom Selleck fan. So I, <laughs> I, I don't Another know. Crush what, from Mama Franklin. Yeah, I don't know what my dad thought of all this, Tom Selleck and Christopher <laughs> Reeve and everything. But uh, uh, if they were in a movie together, I think my mom's head would have exploded. Oh, man. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I even had like a – I had Hot Wheels and I had like the, uh, it was a key car of a Ferrari. I don't think it was Magnum licensed, but you stuck the, the key in the back and you pushed it and it, the car launched off of it. And man, those things would really go. And, uh, <laughs> you didn't, and you could just shoot them at each other if you didn't want to <laughs> roll them on the ground, you know? Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I, I'd recognize this car. Uh, although I don't recognize the person getting out of that car because that's clearly not Richard Pryor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even though, why do they have him look up? I mean, if he hadn't looked up, you you wouldn't know that it's not Richard Pryor. I mean, we didn't need him to look up. We we could tell, oh, we know that's Gus because he's the only person that's, he's the guy that did it, obviously. And if they had him, not, if they hadn't looked up, we would have probably not been able to tell right away that it's not Richard Pryor, but it's clearly <laughs> Richard Pryor's stand-in. So. Yeah, I mean, he kind of looks more like uh, Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that giant wig and stuff. Yeah, it's very clear. I mean, like the skin tone doesn't even match. 
So right. yeah, it is very clearly not not Richard Pryor. I, yeah, I don't know why the why the zoom in. That seems uh, a little unnecessary. Speaking of Magnum PI, don't you feel like Magnum PI? If Mego had lasted a little longer, they would have done like a Magnum PI toy line. That feels like something they would have done. Yeah, um, I think LGN LJ sorry LJN put out uh, a Magnum and the Ferrari set. But yeah, and they were even built the the Magnum figures made like the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, pocket Mego figures, the three and three quarter figures. So yeah, I think I think Mego would have uh, made one. I, I think even LGN even uh, I keep saying G LJN even continued the uh, the chips line Mego started in the small wow. format. So yeah, yeah. But, uh, your your mom is not alone. My sister, my my younger sister. Uh, I have I have two sisters, both of them older, but the younger of the two. It's always so complicated to say. Uh, she loved Tom Selleck. She watched, yeah. so she, your mom was not alone. She was very, very big on Tom Selleck back in the day. Uh, this scene where Ross Webster says, obviously, whoever, you know, would, he wouldn't do something ostentatious with the money. Otherwise, he'd be an utter moron. It reminds me a lot of a scene from Goodfellas. Have you seen Goodfellas, Chris? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the scene where after they pull off the Lufthansa heist yeah. and De Niro's character, Jimmy Conway, is like, you know, no one do anything with the money. The cops are watching us. No one do anything. And then you have this succession of like all the second level goombas that are in on thing and they keep coming in with like a fur coat and a new car and poor jimmy conway's like well get it out of here get it out of here and i just when i think about that scene it feels like that there's like seven beats of that where it's like seven different but it's only just two they really don't overdo it, but it reminds me of that a lot of like this these guys it's like jimmy conway told them don't spend the money and these guys just can't wait to spend the money they cannot wait to do something that would get them caught so, yeah, there's just something about people love to buy guy, get men, especially love to buy their flashy cars. I don't know about you. If I had that kind of money, a car would be like the last thing I would buy because I just I'm not a car guy. I had Hot Wheels toys as a kid, but a car would be the last thing I would spend. I, I don't know, but like a really nice house or so. Well, it almost made it into our grill episode, but I would honestly pay the hundred fifty thousand dollars and get one of those. Uh, uh, kit, uh, 1966 Batmobile, those official version of the 1966 Batmobile that you can get. So that would be I, pretty cool. I, I would get that. that. Yeah. That would be pretty boss. You driving around Kentucky in your Batmobile. That would be I've tried cool. to convince Cindy that we could, should get one. It'll pay for itself when comic conventions mm-hmm. start back up. And I can just, you know, pay five bucks a person to sit in it and take their picture with it and it'll pay for itself eventually, you know, but. How's that working? Biting. Yeah, no, she's not biting. Okay. Yeah, no, <laughs> very smart, smart woman that Cindy. So, okay, so uh, after after the close up of non Richard Pryor, uh, we go to the bowling alley where Clark is uh, on a. And it's not a date exactly. Well, I guess it's sort of a date. He's just hanging out with Lana, and we meet uh, Lana's son Ricky, played by the actor named Paul Kathler. Uh, this is Mr. Kathler's sole credit. Yeah, uh, he has not been in anything else. And if you go on, on to IMDb, there are no there's no information on him. It literally says it's one of those things where Paul Kathler is an actor known for Superman three. Yep, and that's it. And I tried to do a Google search for him to like one of those like where are they now things, and I could find absolutely nothing on, on this young man. So I don't. I mean, I'm guessing that his parents didn't want him to keep being in movies, but it seems amazing to me that your first credit could be something as big ticket as a co-starring role in a Superman movie. And then you never do anything else ever again. 
Yeah, I mean, he drives much of the plot of this movie, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's, it is, it is, and I mean, you know, he's he's not a bad kid actor, I don't think. I mean, no, he's fine. I've seen far worse kid actors. Oh, he's yeah, fine. Lord, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, and he, he plays that kind of hapless kid really well, you know. So, I, you know, I, I don't know how much of it's acting or they just pointed in the right direction. But, yeah, I, I don't understand. It's like, you know, come back, Paul Cather. You can be great again, you know. I yeah. Mean, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I mean, it, that, that, that's not unprecedented. I mean, like Danny Lloyd from The Shining never did another movie, but that was that I had read that like he, he consciously didn't want to do movies anymore. Like he didn't really enjoy doing it. But I mean, <laughs> maybe work with Kubrick, who would? Yeah. Maybe, maybe so. <laughs> Although, from what I heard, Kubrick was very nice to Danny Lloyd. And, and Danny Lloyd, of course, does appear in a cameo in Dr. Sleep, uh, the sequel to The Shining. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, maybe Paul Kaepler didn't enjoy it. Maybe he was like, eh, doing movies isn't fun or whatever. So uh, anyway, there's this scene where uh, we see that Ricky is not a good bowler. He immediately throws a gutter ball, and Brad is there. Brad doesn't seem to have a job. Uh, he's just kind of everywhere they need him to be. Well, and, he does have a job. We'll find out later. But well, yeah, he doesn't true. seem to be at it. Yeah, he does have, we do know? In fact, he does have a job. And uh, he's at this. He's at the uh, the bowling alley, and he's soused. We can see that he's got his shirt sort of hanging open. And we get, you know, in this scene, we get this whole idea of Brad as your sort of typical blustery guy because he wants to show Ricky. First of all, he sort of acts like Ricky's like not like a real boy or something, a real man, because he doesn't know how to bowl. He's like, who cares? And he wants to show Ricky in front of everybody how to bowl. And Clark tries to talk him out of it. And Lana tries to talk him out of it. And he won't listen. So he's just like your typical dude where he thinks he knows best. And he wants to show Ricky in front of everybody. And Ricky, of course, is very embarrassed. Clark, being Clark, uh, is much more reassuring and much more kind. And you figure he's got a trick up his sleeve. So he sets little Ricky up uh, to throw it, throw his ball. And then he throws the second ball. Clark accidentally, I'm doing the finger quotes, stumbles onto some of that, like that hand, uh, I don't know what that chalk. stuff is. Like, that yeah, ch- is it chalk? Okay, that yeah. chalk for your, for your hands. And he pretends to sneeze. And he releases a super-powered sneeze, sending the ball hurtling down the alley, shattering all the pins, and costing this lane about $10,000 worth of damage. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now, we know at the end of Superman 2, Clark is very good at paying for damages when his superpowers cause damage to a local business. We don't see that happen here, but uh, I don't know what kind of money Clark makes, but again, like like an average lane in a in a, in a bowling alley is like several thousand dollars. So destroying yeah. those pins would probably be a lot of money. So Clark is really kind of being careless here. Yeah. I, I mean, it's for a good cause, but uh, you know, to boost uh, Ricky's confidence and, and uh, you know, he's, I mean, no matter how much Ricky sucks from now on bowling, he'll always have that one time. That's like, you know, when he got the best strike in the history of strikes, I mean, you know, but uh, yeah, it's, I, I, one thing I really like about this scene is that this is kind of a different side of Clark Kent than we've seen because I, I like the fact that like Clark disarms Brad in a way that somebody like Brad really doesn't even understand. He doesn't even know what to do with him because mm-hmm. he's so, he's so polite and he just like, you know, he, he, he asks for the ball and kind of takes it out of his hand and gives it to Ricky. And I mean, he says, I don't think he needs a bowling lesson in front of all of his friends here, Mm -hmm. you know? And and I I like that, you know, this is more like the real, that's one thing I talked when we were uh, first started talking about the movie, 
we're we're seeing more like a Clark that I mean he's still he's still got the clumsy and part of his act. That's how he does the sneeze, but he's got more dimension to him. He's more than just an act. It's closer to the true person that you're mm-hmm. seeing, which I think I think's really nice. I mean, you know, it's 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 neat, and, and I, I continue to like the back and forth with Clark and Lana mm-hmm. where they're not having the same conversation <laughs> at the same time, which repeats through this entire movie because, you know, Lana's like, Oh, he, here he is. It's like, you know, whatever it's just four o'clock in the afternoon. He's already soused again or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Clark's like, well, he only had chocolate milk. Cause he thinks she's talking, yeah, about, talking Ricky. about Ricky. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought was cute. And one thing I will point out, before we get to the super more to the super sneeze, Lana Lang wears a lot of butter yellow. <laughs> I didn't really realize that. Is she, is she wearing that in the previous scene? And the- she had her dress was butter yellow at the at the dance. Her jacket here is butter yellow, and so is Clark's shirt, which I think's nice. They're coordinating, so okay. maybe that's just that's. Um, I, there's some shipping going on, obviously, for you shipping fans out there. Uh, so the the producers of this movie are wanting us to say, hey, they belong together. They've got the same taste in clothes, you know, colors anyway. I didn't uh, even notice that. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, this is going to be a continuing thing with Lana. And I will continue to point it out because it's like, you know, it, I, Lana, it, you know, most small town moms on a budget don't like say – you know, don't really coordinate the wardrobe, <laughs> mm-hmm. but apparently Lana Lang does. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Uh, so for this scene, there is one thing I really like about it. And there's one thing I don't really like about it. Uh, okay. let, let, let's, I really wish they had not buttoned it with Gesundheit. I, in that the idea is that everyone is acknowledging that Clark is the one, his sneeze is the one that sent the ball hurtling down the alley. I feel like, I I feel like the the smashing the bowling pin scene is is of a piece with the opening the silly humor, but you get away with it uh, sort of because it's just it's just a weird thing that happens. But to me, when you have the characters acknowledge that it was Clark that did it, not Ricky, to me it's just too much. It just pushes it too far, and so See, I just I, wish they hadn't done that. I wish they just left that part off. See, I got the impression. I, when I was watching it again, I kind of questioned it, but I always got the impression that the kids at least thought that Ricky did it because they're like, "Whoa, you know." Right? Yeah. And, and, and now, uh, now did did Lana think he did it, or did Lana just think he had a hell of a sneeze while Ricky did it, and so just out of oh, I see what you're saying. So maybe by saying like, she's not necessarily by saying good night, she's not necessarily saying Clark, you did that. It's just two separate things. It's two separate. Uh, situations almost like she was gonna she was gonna say gazoon tight anyway and then that happened and so she's so stunned she just rolls out gazoon tight you know okay even though that they're not she doesn't look at them as being related that's how i kind of okay all right i've never i've never thought of it that way but that makes not only does that make sense i like that better okay so let's go with that let's go with that and let me i'll talk about the thing i actually do like is when Clark is helping Ricky and he's, you know, giving him the pep talk again, Richard, um, Richard Lester cuts back to, uh, Annette O'Toole and there's just a single shot of Annette O'Toole as Lana Lang. And you can see the warmth that she is feeling for Clark wash over her face. 
-hmm. And it's the kind of thing where I can't pinpoint, I can't tell you what she's doing with her face that tells me that, but I can sense it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a really, that's the mark of a good actor that they can convey a lot with very little. It's not like she goes like, woo, you know, I mean, there's some like big Jim Carrey take, you know, or anything like that. (laughs) But it's just, you could just see her affection for Clark is growing and she has met, you know, in her dialogue, she talks about that the good men are hard to find and there's hardly any men in this town. And here she's re- reconnecting with, with Clark and she is seeing he is everything clearly that she is looking for. And Annette O'Toole is not given a whole lot to work with in this movie, I don't think. I think her character is relatively underwritten. But she does a lot with that 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 little single, I think, conveys quite a bit. So that the, I like that part quite a bit. Yeah, that's yeah, good good point. Yeah, that was really nice. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, so I, I thought that was that was really sweet. And so again, I really wish they had maybe followed up with Clark, you know, writing a check to the bowling alley for the twelve thousand uh, dollars that uh, that that he's owing the bowling alley. So uh, after that, we cut back to uh, Websco, and we see Gus's coworker coming out of the bathroom. This is something I never noticed until just you know, going through this movie and uh, a lot. He comes out with his cigarette and he, he's not, I guess, I mean, 1983, you could still smoke in, in your workplace, but I think that's a joint. I don't think that's a, just a regular cigarette. The way he's handling it, he's sort of babying it and he's actually pinching it off. Like it's like, I mean, most people I would, I've never smoked, but I would assume most people when they're done with their cigarette, they just would throw it out uh, or, or, you know, smash it up and throw it in. But he's kind of like babying it, which makes me think it's, it's pot. Like he got high on his lunch hour or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't tell if it was that or it's like, it's almost like he, he picked up a, either his own cigarette or this is really gross. Another cigarette that somebody had partially put out in an ashtray and was that like, would be really gross. Flicking yeah. the ashes off the end of it. Like, you know, he put it down for a while and then picked it up and started smoking it again or something. I, I've never smoked either. So for those of you that have smoked our listeners, tell us what he's doing. Cause I don't, I don't know, but yeah, yeah, know. he may have been, I mean, it was the eighties. He may have been getting high on his, yeah. Break, I, I, I don't know. yeah, it's just the way he's babying. It makes me suggest it's not just a regular cigarette that you would just casually toss aside. So, uh, and then, uh, he, he's the one who informs Gus that, uh, the boss wants to see him. And there's this nice long shot where everybody sort of freezes. Yeah. So obviously that's not a good thing when the boss wants to see you, especially when you have to go, that I up, and so then we see Gus get in this uh, glass elevator, which uh, in hit in its shape, the glass elevator reminds me a lot of one of the crystals from the yeah. Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or not. It does make me think this is exactly the kind of building that Lex Luthor would have loved to have been in. Yeah, yeah, you know, he couldn't get away with it; he had to be underground. But this is exactly the kind of opulent sort of palace that Lex would have built for himself had he not been a wanted criminal. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Ross Webster that is very much the John Byrne Lex Luthor, the yep. post crisis John Byrne Marv Wolfman revamp Lex Luthor, the mm-hmm. businessman, you know, the untouchable yep. businessman. So yeah, it's it, when 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 Luthor. I mean, honestly, as a kid, when they made Luthor a businessman, I'm like, oh, they made him the guy from Superman three. I mean, that, <laughs> that was more my reference for evil businessman than anything because I was a kid. You know, right, I didn't, right. I didn't, you know, I mean. It, it, Corp, you know, evil corporate types weren't, you know, uh, that big on my radar back then. So, you know, uh, it, it kind of fits. <laughs> yep. So I mentioned in the previous uh, episode how much Ross Webster's place looks a lot like, to me, Max Shrek's 
from Batman Returns. It's all <laughs> yeah. this Art Deco. And it's all gray. And it's all hard angles and like it's a pointy furniture. And uh, uh, Robert Vaughn and Richard Pryor have this nice scene where Ross Webster talks about uh, that he's so rich. He was born rich. And he is so rich, he doesn't wear the same pair of socks more than one day in a row. And they have this long run where, you know, Richard Pryor's like, what do you got? Or Gus says, what do you do with your, what do, what do you do with your socks? He's like, I don't even know. Like, maybe they turn them into pen wipers or they give them to charity. I don't know. Maybe they turn them into Bomba socks or something. And I actually really like this scene because I feel like later on in the movie, Ross Webster, as played by Robert Vaughn or as written the way he's written, he becomes to me kind of, I mean, maybe when we go over the movie, as we go on, um, I'll, I'll see different shades of it that I never noticed before. Kind of like the Gesundheit scene that you pointed out for me. But from what I can remember, for most of the rest of the movie, Ross Webster is very cardboard cutout villain. Yeah. And this, this whole run about the socks is to me unique. It's different in that he's not, I mean, we're going to find out that he's evil very soon in the next episode. We'll find out what about his plan is, but there's something like, He's almost kind of like um, the way Michael Keaton played Bruce Wayne in the first Batman movie, where he's kind of like a clueless rich dude who doesn't yeah. really understand why. I don't know where my socks go. It's they, they, nothing you even really thought about. And I like that the movie took the time for this run, this kind of silly run as Ross is making a drink. By the way, the uh, the bar that rotates around, that is boss. Yeah. Is super boss. I'm again, not a big drinker, but man, I'd love to have something like that in, in my house. But yeah. I mean, I, I like this routine. I'm Robert Vaughn, not really known for comedy. I mean, of course, he was in The Magnificent Seven and, and The Man from Uncle and stuff. But uh, I it's it, it's charming. And to me, it makes him different from Lex Luthor. Not that Lex Luthor wasn't funny. He was very funny. Gene Hackman in, in the part was very funny, but he's funny in a different way. And I like that this is their effort to make him distinct from Lex Luthor. Uh, when I think later on the movie, the, those the, that would, that would blare a lot more. Yeah. I kind of wish they kept, and, and, and again, we may find that they do keep more of, uh, than what we think, but I wish they kept more of this angle of him because I, I, I'm the same way. I like the fact that he, you know, we, we find out what his scheme is later and in the next episode, actually, like you said, but if it just been more like, okay, they tried this little thing and it worked and they just, they, it just kept escalating. And, you know, he wasn't quite as, you know, mustache twirling about mm-hmm. it. You know, if he was like, okay, this works. So I, I got to have more. I got to have more. And you, because he seems like, I mean, he was talking about they donate the ch- socks to charity. He was named humanitarian of the year. I mean, obviously that can be a front and it can be a real SOB behind all that. But I mean, at this time, you really don't get that he's, a bad guy, you know, mm-hmm. I think mean, mm-hmm. so I kind of wish they'd kind of kept some of this, maybe even if they'd had Vera be the one steering him to do bad things, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that might've been more interesting. Like she was really the, especially since she ends up, you know, giving everybody nightmares for the rest of her lives. <laughs> uh, spoiler warning. Damn it. But yeah, you know, I, I kind of wish they could because Robert Vaughn, he's a, you know, Robert Vaughn's just an instantly charming guy, you know, yeah. and, and I think, you know, his charms kind of wasted later on in this film. I, I think we'll see, but I remember it being that way. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So it's, again, it's a fun, it's a fun little bit back and forth. And, uh, and that's going to, that ends the, that ends our sex. That ends the uh, minute 35 of, uh, of Superman three. So, so we're going to find out the next episode, what the whole plot is. And Ross Webster will reveal his evil plan. But for now, he's just 
weird, charming, uh, rich guy, and he's willing to uh, have Gus Gorman up for a drink. By the way, I mean, it's a movie conceit. Uh, nothing like this ever happens. Mill- like, people that own businesses don't have their luxury penthouses in the same building as their business. Like right. they, they don't, they don't, they don't live in the building. You know, like I don't, you know, something like you can go to the Amazon warehouse and Jeff Bezos's office is there. That's somewhere <laughs> else. But I mean, for the sake of movie economy, they don't have the, they don't want to bother getting Richard Pryor or Richard Pryor's double uh, in a, uh, in a, <laughs> in a car driving him over there. So fine. All right. He lives in the, he lives in the penthouse of this building, but, but so uh, that's it. That's going to wrap up our, our uh, minute 35 of Superman three. Yep. Sounds good. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're moving toward the uh, actual plot as we're, we're getting closer. <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. So we'll get, that's going to do it for this episode of Superman three movie minute. Of course, all the back episodes of our show can be found on our website, firewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon music. Well, that's a lot of places. Uh, we're always talking the Superman movies on Twitter at Superman Movement. Uh, we have to thank our friends, Alex Robinson and Peter retailer who created the movie by minutes format and are very generously allow other people to use it. So thanks very much guys. And of course, if you want to support the fine water podcast network, you can go to patreon.com slash FW podcast. And there you can unlock various rewards. One of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Superman's pal, Henry Bernstein for his support of Superman three movie minute. That's going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening. Come back next time as the adventure continues with Superman three movie minute. Giorgio, per favore. E grazie.